right, love, I love learning uh, these psalms, and obviously it's helpful when we don't have to learn a new tune, but it's uh, good to be uh, reminded of these great truths from, from the psalms. So this morning we want to continue our study on missions, and uh, we want to see how the gospel is connected closely to the work of missions and I love this uh, study this comes from again Dr. Uh, or John, John Piper's book Let the Nations Be Glad and, and it really uh, it really illumined me in a lot of ways to why it's so important for us to understand that, that um, missions is urgent if you want to have more of an urgency for missions then listen up today. In the first few weeks of this class, we've talked about the foundations of the foundation of missions, that, that we should desire to, the gospel to go out to all the nations. And we concluded that God magnifies His own glory. And the primary way in which He does that is by showing mercy to sinners. God is all about making His name known. And the primary way He does it is not necessarily through cosmological um, miracles or anything like that, but rather through the mercy that He shows to sinners. And so today we need to ask ourselves, what is it that makes this an urgent endeavor? What is it that makes missions, God making His name known, what, what makes this so important? And so the first blank here on your handout is, missions is urgent because of the necessity of conscious conscious faith in Christ. Missions is urgent because of the necessity of conscious faith in Christ. A person has to believe in Christ alone. If God wanted to, He could have judged people at the moment of their first sin. And we know that God's judgment is a real place where God's wrath is poured out on rebels for all of eternity and that everyone who rejects Christ or Everyone who never hears of Him will spend eternity under God's wrath. And that makes our task to do missions to be very urgent. So that's why we ask the question, is Jesus the only way? And so we could easily answer that and just say yes and be done. But what we're trying to do is see why Jesus being the only way is so important to missions. Why does it make missions such an urgent matter? And you could also think not just you know, crossing a culture and spreading the gospel there, but but evangelizing here, spreading the gospel here as well. Why is it so important that we evangelize or spread the gospel around the world? All right? First of all, Christ's claim of exclusivity. Christ's claim of exclusivity. The Christian claim to exclusivity says that only those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ as their substitute will be saved. And this we see as objectively, uh, objectively right and that necessarily every other religion is, is wrong. People will not reach God through other religions or by being good people, but only through faith in Christ. I remember Dr. Ola preaching one time and he told us of a time when he was witnessing to a guy on a plane and, and he asked the guy, so, what do you think? How, how is it that a person gets to heaven? And the guy said, well, it's a lot like getting to Boston. You can get there by plane, or you can get there by boat, or you can walk, or you can take the train, or you can drive. There's lots of ways you can get to Boston. And Dr. Ola said to him, well, that's nice, but I didn't ask you how to get to Boston. I'm asking you how to get to heaven. And what he, say, what he was suggesting in his, his humorous way is that, that there is only one way. That's what John 14, 6 says. Can someone quote that for us? Jesus said unto them, I am the way. So Jesus says, no one. Okay, so are all these other religions okay? Are they eventually going to get to, you know, effectively Boston in various different ways? Or is there only one way? I've heard other people describe getting to God like getting to the top of a mountain. You can get from all different sides, but eventually we all get there. But that's not how we get to God at all. There's only one way to get to God. And Jesus says it's through Him. So as Christians then, this claim of Christ's exclusivity should cause us to desire that that gospel be proclaimed throughout the whole world, knowing that 
only by hearing this, if all the other religions are false and all of those will not lead to God, then this should motivate us to get to to, to spread the gospel for other people to be the the feet, you know, who brings the good news, the person who brings the good news. The skeptic might ask whether this is really true. You know, is Christ really the only way to become right with God? Do people really have to have a conscious faith in Christ to be saved? And many have objected to that claim and suggested that we are being ignorant and intolerant because we believe that you can only come to God through Jesus Christ. Well, I'm sure you've encountered many of these ideas with coworkers or family members. And But if this is the case, um, then, then what is the best way to approach this question? How, how do we answer the, the question of the skeptics? And I think the answer to that is that we need to think about the foundation of Christ's claim of exclusivity. If Jesus says, I'm the only way, we need to think about the foundation of that claim. And to do that, I want to use an illustration. Let's say there's a young man named Brian who's born without kidneys. And therefore, he he, he absolutely has no way of surviving without what? He has no kidneys. Dialysis, right? He has to have his blood filtered in order for the toxins to be removed from his body. Otherwise, over a period of time, he's going to die. You can't live without kidneys unless you have dialysis. So the only thing that can save Brian is to have these dialysis treatments. This is an objective fact. Now, given Brian's grave or serious condition, he would not benefit from an exercise therapist who told him, you know, you're just a little out of shape. And you'd be better if you just stuck to a, a rigorous exercise program. you think that would work for Brian? Nor would he be comforted by a well-meaning philosopher whose advice is to, you know, just embrace this suffering. And and train yourself even to desire having no kidneys. Okay, Don't, don't worry about the dialysis. You think that would be helpful to Brian? Most certainly the advice of a friend who told him, you're not really sick, would not be helpful. I mean, you kind of see where I'm going with this, right? In the same way, Christians believe that all men have a grave problem and that they are separated from God because of their sin. We are like Brian... And we are objectively sick because of our rebellion against God. In fact, Ephesians 2 goes one step farther and says that we are objectively dead spiritually. That we have no way to come to God apart from us being granted life from His Spirit. Would someone read Romans 3, 10-12? Raise your hand. Eric, Romans 3, 10-12. Now, here we need to recognize that in the context, Paul's not saying every single person, meaning every person, even believers. Okay, He's saying those who are apart from Christ. This is us before we came to Christ. That there is not a single person who is righteous. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Every one of us is completely worthless apart from Christ. There's no one who does good. Not even one. You see, we recognize that all people are objectively sick or, as I said earlier, dead and therefore under the judgment of God. And this illness is just as real and just as terminal as cancer is for us as physical humans or AIDS or something like that. But it's even more terrifying than those diseases because it is spiritual and it has eternal consequences. Now, we recognize that this is not a popular message in our age in our age of tolerance and the building of self-esteem. But it is an objective fact that every person is born a sinner. He's born under the wrath of God. So, how are people saved? How are people saved? Salvation can only be obtained through God's promised Redeemer. 
For example, David, an Old Testament king, understood this crucial fact. Remember, he committed adultery against uh, with Bathsheba and then compounded his sin by conspiring to murder uh, her husband, Uriah. However much he exploited Bathsheba and however much he sinned against Uriah, how does he say, uh, to whom does he say he sinned against in Psalm 51? And, and he says it even more starkly than that, doesn't he? He says, to you and you only have I sinned. And that's because David recognized that every sin is a sin against God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and, and justified when you judge. If I committed a sin against Eric, could he say, I forgive you for that? Yeah. Well, maybe in a sort of human, I accept your apology, I won't hold it against you kind of way. But would would Eric be able to, or, or he and I, if we work together, could we atone for that sin that I've committed against Eric? No, because my, my sin is not just against Eric. My sin is also against the Holy God. Okay, And so while he and I could come back together and reconcile, we can't ultimately reconcile with God apart from atonement, apart from a proper sacrifice. So if we're guilty before God, then we can't have any reconciliation apart from what God has prescribed. And that is found uniquely in Christ. Now, other religions provide the wrong solution. They give us the wrong solution to our problem. They have all these ideas of what we ought to do, but they have the wrong solution because they have the wrong diagnosis. If we have a debt before God because of sin that only God can repay, then how does Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism propose to address the problem? How can a religion or a philosophy be the answer to a question it doesn't even recognize or acknowledge, and that is that we have sinned against God and how do we reconcile ourselves to God? Jesus is recorded in the Gospels as saying, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And it is Jesus who is that great physician. Turn to Romans chapter 5. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So you need to first recognize that you are spiritually sick before you can recognize what the the proper prognosis is, the proper proper, uh, uh, correction act of measure needs to be taken. So look at Romans 5 and verse 17. Someone read that for us. Okay, so by the trespass of the one, who's that referring to? That's talking about Adam. Then death reigned upon all men, that is, all of Adam's children. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace? Okay, or how 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 much more will they receive this this gift of righteousness which reigns through the one, that is, Jesus Christ? You see, Christ alone is qualified to save because. He has provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. Only Christ can forgive us of our sins. Only Christ can pay the ransom that God demands. For this reason, Christ alone is worthy. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not any other religious leader. Listen to this wonderful explanation, Revelation 5, 9-10. You are worthy to take the scroll and open it because you were slain and with your blood speaking to Christ the Lamb, you, you purchased men from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and, and they will reign on the earth. The only one, even God the Father Himself, is unworthy to open the books. It's hard to, to say that even when you say God and unworthy in the same sen- sentence, but He can't because He didn't die for sin. The Father didn't die for our sins. It was the Son who died. And only Jesus... The second person of the triune God could open the scrolls. Other verses speak more specifically to this point. In Acts 4.12, there is no other name given among men 
whereby we must be saved. This is Peter's exhortation to the authorities who had detained him and John, remember, in Jerusalem as they preached the Gospel. And he says this, there is no other name under heaven among men by which we are saved. So, he agrees with what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what does this mean for our class on missions? Will someone read Luke 26, 46 and 47? Luke 26, 46 and 47. Raise your hand. No, you're looking there. No, Luke 26. It should be oh, it should be Romans 5:21. Yeah, it should be. Sorry, that should be Romans 5:21. You can change that. Second, okay. Um. All right. How about Luke 24? No wonder I got no volunteers. All right. Luke 24:46 and 47. Paul. Alright, so someone might say, well, fine, salvation can only be obtained through redemptive work of Christ. But that doesn't mean that someone actually has to hear the gospel to be saved. Right? So, yeah, Christ has to be the only way, but maybe a person could get saved unknowingly. So that's the next question we want to address. Is there such a thing as unknowing salvation? Can a person be saved through Christ without realizing it, that, that Christ saves them? In other words, do people need to hear of Christ in order to have a conscious faith in Christ for them to be saved? Listen to this quotation by an author who I think was a faithful Christian. He says this, We know that no man can be saved except through Christ. And we would completely agree. He goes on and says, We do not know that only those who know Him can be saved through Him. So he's saying what we can speak clearly to with regard to our salvation is seen evidently in the Scriptures, and that is that we can only be saved through Christ. But, but he was saying we can't go beyond what the Scriptures don't say, and that is that a person... We don't know if a person come to Christ apart from, apart from uh, knowing about Him. And I think a lot of Christians have wrestled with this issue. I'm not sure where you fall on, on that issue. But this quote was by C.S. Lewis. And it illustrates to me that even a faithful Christian like him can be confused on this issue. I mean, this is an attractive idea. This would be a lot easier for us to, to be able to defend the gospel if, if um, you know, someone could come to Christ apart from knowing about him. This solves the problem of the person who's on the remote island, who's never heard of Christ, but has great reverence for God you know, who controls the universe. Well, I think the answer to this has to come from the Scripture. So let's turn to Romans chapter 10. And I'm just hoping there's the Romans 10. Okay, good. The goal of the Old Testament message is to point us to Christ. It is to point us to this Redeemer that we need to save us from our sins. And so the New Testament is all focused on Christ and the salvation that He offers. And the result is that only by faith in Jesus Christ can a person be saved. And this is what we read in chapter 10 and what someone read verses 9 to 14.
All right, so let's answer several questions. First of all, who is it that's going to be saved? Verses 9 and 10. Who is going to be saved? Those who confess with their mouths. That is, those who call on on God. So, um, but but who's going to call on Him? It's those who believe, right? Those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, who has faith? Skip down to verse 14. Who is it that has faith? It's those who hear. And who hears? Those who have been preached to. Those who have had the Gospel come to them from someone else. You see, telling them the Gospel is the precondition to hearing. Okay, so we don't, we don't go to C.S. Lewis for our answers to whether a person in a remote island is a Christian or can become a Christian apart from hearing the message or not. We don't go to him. We go to the Scriptures, and this is what the Scripture says. The precondition of faith is hearing. The precondition of hearing is that someone proclaims. We can't call on Him in whom we have not heard. We could change these questions into statements if we wanted to. Because that's all they are. They're just rhetorical questions that are making a point. We can't call on someone in whom we have not heard. And we can't hear without someone bringing us the Gospel. Okay, well, there might be some objections. What about Cornelius? Turn to Acts chapter 10. Okay, what about Cornelius? Because he seemed to be a God-fearing man, and yet he had never heard the gospel before. Sorry, one more blank for you as you're turning there. No one can come to Christ apart from a messenger. Acts 10. So it appears that the Acts portrays him as some kind of believer before he hears the gospel. Okay, let me just say a couple things about Acts. Um, one is it's a transitional period, so we need to recognize that we're moving from the dispensation of law to the dispensation of the church or the dispensation of grace. Okay, and so there are going to be some difficult issues that come up, but I think this one's actually explainable in the text. Um, let me first show you why there's some kind of uh, there's some kind of debate about this. Look at verse two of chapter 10. Cornelius was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Okay, and, and as we learn about Cornelius, we found out that he has a vision in which an angel tells him to send some men to Joppa to, to get Peter and to ask him to come to Cornelius. And meanwhile, at the same time, what's God doing with Peter? What's he doing to Peter. Yeah, he's telling Peter as well. He's giving him a vision. You need to go to, uh, you need to accept this invitation. And you remember Peter had a problem with that because Gentiles are ceremonially unclean, and and he had to to use a little analogy of the sheet with the the unclean animals to show him that it was okay for him to go. And um, and then when Peter meets him, look at verse thirty-four. He says. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. And it doesn't seem to have anything requiring faith in Christ. And so maybe Cornelius is an example of someone who trusted in God without knowing of Christ. And maybe God allows that. Okay, And, And I think the problem with this sort of argument and, and it is made by by people who we would um, you know we would call Christians but they're just you know they, they have a different point of view on this passage I think the problem with that is they're taking those two verses and using them out of context okay so let's think about this in the broader picture it's clear from the rest of the chapter and from chapter 11 that when Peter made this statement to Cornelius Cornelius was not saved in fact, Peter proceeds to do what to him when he gets there? What does he do to him and all of his household? He preaches the gospel to him. Well, if Cornelius was saved, why would he preach the gospel? Was it just for the rest of the people there? Notice verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And then even more compelling, when Peter gave a report of this in Jerusalem, skip over to chapter 11, verse 14. 
notice um, the angel who had appeared to Cornelius had told him that he should send for Peter who will speak words to you by which you will be saved and you and you all your household. So here we have a clear evidence that that the people to whom Peter was speaking were not saved. This story, if anything, seems to show the great lengths that God will go to in order to bring somebody to Christ, in order to include him as a part of his salvation plan, that God orchestrated both sides of the events. Have you ever considered that in your own witnessing endeavors? That, that God is orchestrating the events of your life to be able to come in contact with them and also orchestrating the events of their life for you to come in contact with them. Now, it doesn't happen through visions like it did then, but is God not able and does not God through His providential power orchestrate all the events of life so that someone can get underneath the hearing of the gospel as he desires. Bill? Yeah, and and uh, you know the other example I was thinking of was uh, Lydia in Philippi, who's meeting there, just about Jew, meeting there, praying by the river, and Paul comes up to her and and gives her the gospel, and what happens? The Holy Spirit opened her heart, and she understood and responded. So yeah, I think there's everyone knows that there's a God. Romans one tells us that everyone knows, but but they have to believe in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Eric. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it would be a good example that God had ordained that this person would come to Him and now the events of life are playing itself out so that that person actually does. So, um, let's see here. I think I skipped ahead with this next blank, but I'll, I'll let you fill it in anyway. What about faith in the Old Testament? Okay. What about faith in the Old Testament? Aren't there examples in the Bible of salvation apart from faith in Christ? What about the Jews who lived before Jesus? Bill. Yeah. 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 It's a great example. Yep. Um, so it's not enough for these people in remote islands or even our neighbors who know about God and want to be religious. It's not enough for them to do those kinds of things, right? Living up to the light that they know. It actually, they have to understand Jesus Christ. They have to know who He is and respond to Him. So what about these people in the Old Testament? Are we just saying that all people in the Old Testament were unbelievers? And... Um, and what I would suggest to you is very simply what I have here. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Redeemer alone. Now, I changed that from Christ because they wouldn't know who Christ is. Right? In Genesis 3.15, the very the first the, uh, theologians call it the proto-evangelicum, that is the, the, the very initial evangelistic message. It's there with, with ser- the serpent's curse that we looked at last week. That that um, the, the that the seed of Eve is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, but you're, he's going to crush your head. And so I would suggest to you, even in Genesis 3:15, that this works. The salvation was at that time for Adam and Eve that they had to believe in a promised redeemer by grace alone, through faith alone. And and with Job, you know, I know that my redeemer lives. And with every single Old Testament believer. They believed God, Abraham, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed in this promise that God had given, and um, obviously it gets more clear as we go. That's the only thing that's changed. Think about it. The, 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 the whole idea of salvation has not changed. It's always been by grace alone, in, through faith alone, in the promised Redeemer alone. The only thing that's become more clear is the object of our faith. That promised Redeemer has become clearer to us now. Right? Because we know that He has a name. What is His name? His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Right? And as we move on, when we're raptured from here, and then the next dispensation comes in, the dispensation of the the um, the uh, 
or actually the the tribulation is actually a part of um, a part of this age of grace. But but the dispensation of the um, the kingdom that comes, there will be even more clear uh, a clearer view of that object, Jesus Christ, right? Because he will now be on the earth. You'll be able to see him. You'll actually know all the history that the fact that he's won the battle against sin and so on. All right. Okay, so let's say we've convinced the skeptic that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, through conscious faith alone in Christ. And he turns around and says, and you can read this on the bottom here, what a horrible doctrine. What about the person who has never heard? Under the Christian doctrine, he will be punished for his sins forever just because no one ever told him. Is that fair? I mean, isn't it horribly unjust of God who is all-powerful to choose to save one but not the other? Isn't that horribly unjust of God? Well, to see how distorted of a question that is, let's go back to our original analogy regarding Brian. What was Brian's problem? He was born with no kidneys, right? You know, there is not always such a thing as dialysis. Right? Anyone have any idea rough time period when dialysis came in? Like 1700s, 1600s? What do you think? 1945. So if you're born before 1945 without kidneys, what would have happened to you? Unless you got a transplant, you would die, right? Now, while Brian might like, uh, he might not like his current condition, you think he complains that there's only one treatment for his condition? I'm sure he doesn't insist that other people who have his condition, you know, just use the alternative means that are available for you. You know, whip yourself into shape through this local exercise club like this other person told you. Or trust those other people who are saying you're not really sick. You see, Brian may be saddened from whatever reasons, you know, that not everyone has access to dialysis like he has, and not everyone's had it historically, but I doubt that he's going to refuse it for himself because of this. Instead, he clings to this one treatment as the only source of his hope. And he's grateful. Thank, he's greatly thankful for it as well. Listen to this other illustration that Piper gives. A man who's headed for a desired destination may come to a great chasm between his current location and his desired destination. Is he going to complain that there's only one bridge there? No. Particularly if that bridge was constructed at a great cost. Christians believe that God has unilaterally, in a one-sided way, reached down to a rebellious people, built a bridge of reconciliation across to Himself at a great cost to Himself and to His own Son. So the people who argue for this you know, fairness, equal treatment, that God should either save everyone or send everyone to hell they just don't understand fully what their sin means before God. In fact, if you, if you pin them down, a lot of them are universalists. That is, they believe everyone is worthy of heaven eventually. Right? They don't think anyone's worthy of hell because that would make God unjust. He has to choose either all or none. And that's where, when you come across these kind of people, you need to help them to see the seriousness of their own and your own sin against the Holy God. That apart from this this bridge, apart from this method of correction, the dialysis, they, they are lost and they are on their way to an eternal hell. So, we have several illustrations that will make the point that God is not unfair in sending many people to hell. And really, the question should not be, why would God ever send someone to hell? The question really should be, why would God ever allow anyone to go to heaven? I mean, that is grace. If we think we deserve heaven, then we don't understand grace. We don't understand our sin. I think that's what the point of the parable is in Matthew 20 when you have all these workers working all day and they're sent, you know, some are working all day, some are hired in the middle of the day, some at the end of the day. 
And at the end of the day, the master pays them the exact same amount. And the ones who worked through the heat of the day and worked all day are, are mad because the people who are only there for one hour got the same amount as they got. And he said, don't you understand that actually the fact that you have a job today is a measure of my grace to you? In other words, you didn't earn any of this. This was all a gift that you were able to actually receive wages. And didn't we agree that this is what you would receive at the end of the day? The point is, when we enter heaven, we can't say anything better about ourselves than any other person, can we? Because it was all of grace. It was all of God's mercy. In Romans 9, Paul asks how a person can question God's actions when it is the same very wise God who formed us, who made us like the potter makes the, or molds the clay. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah asked rhetorically, Who is it that God consulted to enlighten him? And who showed him the path of understanding? See, in the end, we must trust in God and His purposes, which can be sure and just. He is the potter. He's molding the clay. How foolish it is, is it of us as the clay to, to say to the potter, Why are you making me this way? God is wise and sovereign, and He will see that His purposes are accomplished, and we can rest in that. But, God's sovereignty and justice are not the only thing that we have to rest on. No, we can rest on His character as it's revealed in Christ, which is one of almost incomprehensible, unimaginable, self-giving love. Think of it, the idea that the Creator of the universe would take on flesh and humble Himself to the point of death on a cross to save sinners who deserve hell. This defeats the charge of unfairness. The fact that He made a bridge across to us rebellious people, there's nothing unfair in that. It's all mercy. So how does this connect to missions? How does this connect to missions? Because... You know, we, we probably all started out where we ended in this class. We all believed that there's only one way to God through Jesus Christ. And so you probably haven't changed your view on anything. Maybe just reminded of a few things. But how does our understanding of the fact that man can only be saved by a conscious faith in Christ affect our view of missions? One of the things that we tend to use to motivate ourselves and others for evangelism and missions is the lostness of people. When I was growing up, there's a song called People Need the Lord by Steve Green. Anybody ever heard of it? Okay, you don't want to admit it, but you have, and you've got it on your iPod now, I'm sure. But, uh, but, but the motivation for evangelism often is that, you know, people are lost. And we ought to be concerned about the lost. Remember, Paul in Romans 10 says, you know, I wish I, myself accursed. I wish I could go to hell in place of these Jews. I wish... I, if, if I could go to hell and it would mean their life, I would do it. So we should be concerned about the lost. But the primary motivation, what I'm suggesting is the primary motivations for missions and evangelism ought to be the glory of Christ. We ought to be concerned that God is not being glorified through Christ in the lives of our unbelieving neighbors. We're sitting next to family members and, and co-workers who don't exalt Christ as He deserves. God is not being glorified fully in the Ivory Coast or in Uruguay. He's not fully being glorified. And people need to see that. They need to glorify Him as He deserves. There are large portions of our globe where the sun rises and sets and the name of the Lord is not praised. And the only way that God's name will be known and someone else, this is what we need to understand, is if one of us tells them, if your mind was drifting the rest of class today, don't miss this final point. No one can be saved apart from faith in Christ. And faith in Christ cannot happen unless a person tells them. No one can be saved apart from faith in Christ. And no one can come to faith in Christ apart from one of us telling them about Christ. Think back to the example of Cornelius again. God is committed to using people to exalt Himself. He could have somehow, in a magical way, or maybe a miraculous way would sound better, miraculous way, 
give the gospel to Cornelius apart from human means. He could have dropped a, a, a copy of the Scriptures with, with a bunch of notes that explained everything for him. Could God have done that? Absolutely. But He chose to do it a different way. And He chooses to do it a different way today. And that is, He chooses to use humans like you and me who have already heard the Gospel, who have already been changed by it, who are being changed by it. He uses them to take to them the Gospel of salvation. What a privilege we have. And the fact that God would use us, the fact that God would use us should increase our motivation to do so. Our desire to see God glorified is the great foundation of missionary work. But we must also see that a healthy understanding of and meditation on the exclusivity of the Gospel is a worthy motivation too. If you want to grow in your passion for missions and evangelism, have you seen that your life is a little bit cold to reaching people for the sake of Christ, either people that you know or people around the world? If so, pray that God would cause your heart to increasingly burn with the desire to be an instrument of His life-saving gospel that goes out to men and women who are already appointed for eternal life. Let me leave you with the question and then see if you have any. This is from Charles Hodge, a theologian. says this, The solemn question implied from the, the Apostle in Romans 10, you know, how can they call on Him in whom they have not heard, and so on. How can they believe without a preacher, and so on. Okay, the solemn question implied from Paul in Romans 10 ought to ring in the ears of churches day and night. We ought to think about that regularly. That that um, people can't come to Christ unless they know about Christ. Now, in our area, we we live in a a rich historical. We have we have a rich heritage, I should say, as Americans. But but part of the problem, I think, with that is that we become complacent to the idea that that people don't know Christ. There may have been a time, maybe when you were growing up, when everybody knew about Christ and everybody went to church and all that sort of thing. And even if they rejected Him, they at least went to church and they knew some basic facts about Him, about Him, about the Scriptures. But but I think we take for granted many times our rich heritage as Americans. And so we treat people as if they already know about Christ. Don't you think that some of your neighbors or many of your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members, don't you think that they don't really know about who Christ is? There's this um, seven-week um, evangelistic Bible study that I would like to work through this spring. And um, I'm still working on getting the dates for us to do that. It's, uh, it's a material that was put together by... Uh, Christianity, it's called Christianity Explored. And uh, one of the questions that they have is just basically a study through the Gospel of Mark and it's seven weeks so that the people, unbelievers, can come in and just be introduced to Jesus Christ for themselves. Because a lot of times what people think about Christ is not really what, you know, who Christ is based on what the Scripture is. So let's open up the Bible. Let's, you, you, here, you meet Jesus Christ for yourself. You read along with us, ask questions as you go. It's a really helpful uh, Bible study, and I think it'll be a helpful tool for us as a church to use. But one of the questions that they, or one of the statements that they make uh, throughout this seven-week study, is that if the gospel is not the best news that you've ever heard, then you don't understand it. Friends, we have that gospel message. We have the best news that anyone has ever heard, and and for us to hold it too closely to ourselves and not share it with others I think I think indicates part of our heart and so we need to pray for God to enliven our hearts and to and to fuel our hearts to greater action and uh, so we'll be talking some more about this as we move on I know this is primarily a class on missions but I think the application really works well for evangel evangelism as well no one can come to faith in Christ apart from Jesus Christ, and no one can come to faith in Christ apart from hearing about Him. We have responsibility to tell them. Any questions or comments?
Yes, Bill. Yeah, you gotta hear. They need to believe in order to be saved. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he had a clear, vibrant, living testimony of what it means to follow Christ right there through Stephen who's not buckling under persecution. Yeah, it's a good observation. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Lord, help our hearts. Lord, I I know I have been thinking about my own self and the coldness that I've had towards reaching people for You. And and, uh, Lord, I imagine that there are a few people in here that have the same sort of idea. So I pray that You would just uh, fuel our hearts